You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... When the Ukrainians decide to mass these tanks into a single armored force, they can go anywhere. They can crack the Russian lines. They can drive to the Black Sea and split the Russian forces. Former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Devridis on how Ukraine will soon be able to wield tank warfare on Russia. Later, a conversation with executive editor for Asia Markets, Paul Dobson, on tail risks going into next week's China markets reopening and Federal Reserve meeting. We'll also get an update on Myanmar's dire situation with Clara Ferreira Marquez and Justin Fox joins on the outlook now for retailers who avoided bankruptcy around the pandemic. Turns out they might just be okay. Now to Ukraine. As Russia's war on Ukraine passes the 11-month mark, the US and Germany both announced this week they would send battle tanks to Ukraine. The United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine. It will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. Supporting Ukraine's ability to fight off Russian aggression to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity is a worldwide commitment. We're joined now by former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Stavridis, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and author most recently of To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. So, Admiral, these tanks are now coming, even if it takes some months and training, obviously, for Ukraine's military. What kinds of offensives or missions will Ukraine's military leaders now start planning? I think, first and foremost, we've got to underline an important factor that many people are not talking about, which is simply the demonstration of alliance unity that this provides. This is a real morale boost for the Ukrainians, and it's a shot across the bow of the Russians that the West has come together and arrived at this decision. In terms of the actual tactical capability, it's quite significant. Ultimately, I would predict there'll be somewhere between 100 and 200 of these tanks available to the Ukrainians to include both Leopards, the Abrams, the British Challengers. You put them all together, that's a very significant pivot point level of force, and it provides two big things for the Ukrainians. One, they can use them to blunt any spring offensive that the Kremlin cooks up because the Russians just don't have the kind of heavy armor and tanks left. They lost so many in the opening months of the war. Mm. So defensively, very important. And secondly, offensively, when the Ukrainians decide to mass these tanks into a single armored force, they can go anywhere. They can crack the Russian lines. They can drive to the Black Sea and split the Russian forces. So it's a significant moment in this war. 
Admiral, give us a sense of what these M1 Abrams, German Leopard 2s, Challengers can do in the universe of battle tanks. They're at the top, if you were to look around the world, at the top five tanks in the world, if you will. In them, you'll find both the Leopard and the Abrams. Challenger, probably a top 10 tank. These are very high speed in the world of tanks. They can go 45 miles an hour. They carry dozens and dozens of heavy rounds, 150-millimeter rounds, very big, explosive. They're well-armored, particularly the Abrams. They have sophisticated command and control on them. On the Abrams crew of four, so well-manned, reasonable range, well over 300 miles without refueling. So these are very capable machines of war. Do they have vulnerabilities? Of course. Anything you put on a battlefield ultimately could be vulnerable. But I'll put it this way, Vonnie, I'm a Navy guy, but if I had to be on a battlefield, I would want to be inside an Abrams tank, believe me. Well, you are a Navy guy, but you've seen it all, so to speak. Will Ukraine's military receive advice from battle-experienced military personnel such as yourself? I'm not saying you necessarily, but how will they start planning missions? It sounds like you already have 10 missions that you could plan, given this kind of arsenal. Yeah, exactly. Although I am a Navy guy, I was, as you know, the Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, so I commanded significant land forces in Europe, in Afghanistan, in every conceivable circumstance. Exactly. And I, I assure you that Pentagon planners will be opening the doors and with opening, welcoming arms, talking to their Ukrainian counterparts to try and create the kind of battle force necessary. Somebody who springs to mind in this regard, by the way, is Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former commander of U.S. Army Europe, commander of all NATO land forces, was on my team there. He's very involved in helping advise, and he's retired, but also active duty U.S. and NATO planners and advisors are working already with the Ukrainians on these kinds of tactical plans. How effective could a Russian defence be against some of these tactical plans? Is there a scenario in which Ukraine can just go on the offensive and finish this quickly? No, I wish I could agree with that. But unfortunately, at this point, the Russians are very dug in. And this is very significant, Bonnie. They still have control of the air. They have control of the sky. Mm. And therefore, they will be able, they, the Russians, will be able to mount attacks against these tanks from the air. The Ukrainians have a minimal air capability. But that's why I think the next stage in the discussion here is going to be should we move forward and provide the Ukrainians with combat aircraft, such as the MiG-29s that the Poles fly quite capably. The Ukrainians know how to fly it. They could jump in those jets immediately and have real impact. Or U.S. F-16, train up the Ukrainian pilots, get them into that aircraft. I think that's a conversation that you're going to see unfold in the next few months. Well, exactly, because that's the next piece of equipment in Ukraine's armor, right? Does Ukraine eventually get manned aircraft fighter jets? What would it take? I think they will. And what it will take to motivate the West to do this are two things. One is the continued war criminal attacks by the Russians against Ukrainian civilians, critical infrastructure, electricity, water, All of that is increasing the pressure on the West to provide the Ukrainians the means to close their skies. 
And then secondly, what we just talked about, Ronnie, as these tanks hit the battlefield and the Ukrainians want to put together offenses against Russia, they're going to need air cover. We ought to be looking seriously at how is that going to be provided. Combat aircraft are a part of that. Another part of it would be even more capable unmanned aircraft. We've already provided some, but that would be another capability that could be provided to the Ukrainians to support those tanks as they go into battle. Mm. Well, now the Kremlin, as one might anticipate, said Ukraine's allies were overestimating the potential of these tanks to influence the war, calling it a deep delusion. Any truth to that at all? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Let's put it this way. Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin have lied about everything since the start of the war. So for them to purport to analyze the battlefield and tell us these tanks are going to be useful or not, I think is ridiculous. Any military professional will tell you these tanks, once you get into real numbers, you know, it's not going to be a few dozen, but once you have a couple of hundred or more, it'll be a very powerful force on the battlefield. On the battlefield, though, how will Russia respond to the Leopard 2s and the M1 Abrams? They will seek to flip the switch from what we did to their armor which means they will try to use drones to go after them. They'll try to use their command of the air to strike the tanks from their combat aircraft. They will have some anti-tank missiles, much like the Javelin missiles. Um, Our tanks, however, are much more battle-hardened, and more importantly, we know how to use them in combined arms operations, meaning those tanks will have the capability of surrounding forces, for example, with stingers to take out aircraft coming in that threaten the tanks. Combined operations is going to be the key to using these tanks effectively. I'm confident we'll be able to put that together. Now, Admiral, you drew attention to something very important in a Bloomberg Opinion column. The War Reserve Stockpile Ammunition Israel, or WRSAI, U.S. Weapons in Israel, effectively, some of the ammunition and so on, will be transferred to Ukraine. Explain to us a little bit more about what is happening in that region. Certainly. When I was the commander of U.S. European Command in charge of all U.S. forces in Europe, part of my remit was military-to-military cooperation with Israel. So I have a lot of personal experience looking at this quite enormous stockpile of weapons, which is pre-positioned forward, owned by the United States, maintained by Israel within the state of Israel. It's probably between $1 and $1.5 billion in weapons, ammunition, and equipment. Part of that stockpile includes artillery rounds, in particular howitzers, that kind of equipment, which was put there in case a massed Arab attack or an Iranian attack were to occur against the state of Israel. Mm. Because Israel now has warming relationships with the Arab world, and because Iran isn't going to mount a massive ground defense, and because the Syrian armed forces have been shattered in the Syrian war, the Pentagon and the Israelis have agreed that it makes sense to take some several hundred thousand artillery rounds out of that stockpile and move them to Ukraine. That's what's happening. It makes sense. The Israelis have agreed it. U.S. is pushing it. We're going to get those rounds in the hands of the Ukrainians, I would say, easily in time for spring offensives. Bloomberg Opinions, Admiral James Stavridis. And the Admiral continues with us in moments, so stay tuned to Bloomberg Opinion.
You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. And we're back with former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Stavridis. In a Bloomberg Opinion column this week, the Admiral pointed to U.S. military stockpiles in Israel, some of which will now get transferred to Ukraine, and what that all means for Israel's quote-unquote insurance policy. Let's rejoin the conversation. This will likely change what Israel procures for its own stockpiles. Does that change the balance of military strength in that region at all, then? I think this will be an opportunity for the Israelis, working in concert with the United States, of course, to change the character of that stockpile. Currently, it's very 20th century ground warfare centric, which is kind of what we're seeing in Ukraine, of course. But the real battles in the Middle East are going to turn on air defense, precision-guided munitions, sophisticated command and control, surface-to-surface missiles, anti-ship cruise missiles, none of those in any numbers are in that stockpile. So I think this is an opportunity to take, if you will, the dumb weapons out, put the smart weapons in. It's a win-win-win. The Ukrainians win because they get what they need today. The Israelis get what they need for 21st century warfare in that region. And the U.S. satisfies two of our close allies and partners, Israel and Ukraine. Any concerns, though, that it ups the ante a little bit? No. I think that at this stage of the conflict, there is nothing more the West can do that provokes Russia anymore. And let's face it, Russia started this war, invaded Ukraine, is massacring civilians, is running torture chambers and rape rooms in the cities they have occupied. They are undeserving of our concern over their sensibilities. It's time to really turn on the capability for the Ukrainians to push back this unjust, unwarranted and illegal invasion. Any concerns that Israel changing the nature of what it has in its weapons stockpile, that that ups the ante in that region at all? Not in my view, simply because of the warming relationships between Israel and the Arab world. If you'd asked me that question five years ago, I might have had some concern. Today, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, all of the Gulf states, Bahrain, have moved in the direction of Egypt and Jordan. 
to become, in effect, partners with Israel as they stand together against a growing Iranian threat. Mm. So as a result of that, I'm quite comfortable within the region as well as with the geopolitical reality of sending the weapons to Ukraine. What is your latest sense of how Vladimir Putin is receiving intel about the war and what his plans are? Yeah, for Vladimir Putin, I hope the light is going on. We would say in Russia, wake up and smell the tea. It is brewing and it's getting hot on the stove. And I think that Putin is approaching a point where he is not going to be able to negotiate his way out of this and is looking at a terrible defeat on the battlefield and the shattering of his armed forces. So I think he needs to wake up to what's happening. He still could move toward a negotiation, but that window is closing for Russia. Bloomberg Opinion's Admiral James Stavridis, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. Let's turn to markets now. With China markets reopening next week and a Federal Reserve decision to look forward to, markets are assessing tail risks. There is an opportunity for the Fed to perhaps orchestrate a, a soft landing. If the economy rolls over into recession, then it's very unlikely stocks will hold up. That's not priced. Paul Dobson is executive editor for Asia Markets. So, Paul, you're based in Singapore. Obviously, there's a slightly different viewpoint from there as we head into next week. What is primarily on traders' minds as we approach China markets reopening, as well as obviously the Federal Reserve meeting? I think that the reopening of China is going to be a big deal and grab a lot of trader attention at the start of the week. Bonnie, the early indications from the holiday travel data and other economic inputs that we've had have been reasonably positive relative to expectations and relative to recent years, of course, with more people traveling and getting out there and spending despite the concerns over the spread of the virus. So that should bode well for the Chinese market. The flip side of that, of course, is we had such a huge run-up already this year. People will be interested to know whether that momentum can continue. Probably there's a reasonable grounds to expect that that can continue because what we've really been seeing is large international investors with major underweight China positions being forced, at least reduced that sort of short that they have out there. So buying back some of their China exposure just because the outperformance has been so strong. So that should continue to lend some support and momentum for the market together with what will hopefully be increasingly encouraging economic news as well as the virus dissipates from here. And yes, it does seem like perhaps the virus did peak when officials say it peaked. We'll have to wait and see, of course. Yes, it does seem likely that the travel from the cities to the countryside means that we'll enter a different phase to the virus where it will filter out across the rest of the country. But with the major cities starting to see a reduction in cases again, that should bode well for that reopening trade as well. Now, Paul... How much of the reopening trade is going to be coloured by the potential for the Fed to move 25 basis points and be either dovish or hawkish? We're not quite sure yet. Probably hawkish, right? Probably the risk is for a hawkish surprise, if anything. You know, the Fed has been adamant that it wants to get interest rates higher and then keep them there for longer than the market is pricing in. The market has been pretty tenacious in its bets on the opposite. And the way that that pays out across Asia's markets is in a weaker dollar, a weakening dollar, which is supporting Asia FX in particular through this period and also lending a lot of traction to emerging markets. You know, we're seeing outflows from U.S. markets 
into emerging markets, which includes North Asia in particular and China, as we've been saying, but right across the rest of our region as well. So, you know, it's hard to see how much more insistent the Fed can be, but they will do their best, one would imagine, to jolt those expectations or bring them back in line with what the Fed would like to see. It will be really interesting as well to see how the market interprets the Bank of Canada's decision to go on hold from here. Mm. Um, They were the first to start hiking, more or less, now the first to go on hold and whether that's a message that will gain traction across the other major central banks through the rest of this year and give more confidence to that sort of riskier asset kind of trade. Yes, and sort of contrary to the shiver that went through markets after Australia reported higher than anticipated inflation. Absolutely, absolutely. So so Australia may have a little bit more fuel in the tank for those rate increases after that inflation surprise. But again, you know, the market is waiting to hear whether we're moving closer to a kind of holding position in some of our larger economies here. You know, and then on the flip side, of course, funny for our region, the Bank of Japan is just moving in the opposite direction yes. as everybody else is as everybody else is starting to slow down that pace of rate increases. And that obviously is going to continue to be very strongly in everybody's focus in the coming days and weeks. Paul, does the debt ceiling in the United States and the potential fight over raising it or not raising it, I guess, is that something that's visible in Asia yet? Um, No, I would say not yet. I think what we're all doing over this side of the world is our homework, reading all those charts, phoning up on what it might mean and when it might mean something for us. It seems, you know, it's, it's something to more worry about as we get further through the year. But... Asian investors will be anxious about the idea of a U.S. default, given the holdings of treasuries by governments across the region. It's not the sort of thing that they like to see. There's already been some barbed comments that we've seen from various Chinese officials. And so, you know, more a story for later in the year. But at the same time, you know, everybody's going to be following it with increasing attention as as those deadlines and the sort of spending limits draw closer. Executive Editor for Asia Markets, Paul Dobson there. Stay tuned, we get a glimpse into the devastated economy of Myanmar next as civil war rages on. Bloomberg Opinion's Clara Ferreira-Marquez joins. More next on Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. Myanmar has largely disappeared from headlines this following the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But it was the subject of a brutal coup almost two years ago and has been in an intractable civil war ever since. (laughs) 
The coup, of course, had followed an election that had produced a landslide victory for Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy. Well, the junta took over and violence ensued. It's prompted a surge of resistance and repression, as Clara Ferreira Marquez writes in Bloomberg Opinion. She joins me now. So, Clara, Myanmar is a country that's a little bit dipped out of the limelight, partially because I guess it's a civil war that's happening there as opposed to a war being imposed on it by another country, but also because really of a lack of journalism from Myanmar. It's a very, very difficult place to do journalism from. But the economy is in trouble. About 40% of the population currently living below the national poverty line, according to the World Bank. How bad is the situation right now? Well, very bad indeed. I mean, Myanmar has been troubled for quite some time and it had a spark of hope around 2015 with the election of Aung San Suu Kyi's government. It was really a, an optimistic moment, even though really the military had not actually ceded that much. So the military junta had officially ended in 2011. They really hung on to as much as they could. And when they saw the landslide election at the end of 2020, really moving towards the National League for Democracy, so Aung San Suu Kyi, it was a bit too much. And they pulled it all back in February 1st, 2021, so just before the new parliament was due to be sworn in. They grabbed power. I mean, really, you're looking at Southeast Asia's poorest country, a number of problems, including ethnic conflicts, even well before this particular incident. Obviously, then you have a terrible situation of military brutality and resistance on top of all these existing problems. So the result is inevitably terrible. There's a huge number of factions that are part of the resistance. Are they banding together well? Are they fighting amongst each other? Tell us what you know about how the resistance is faring at the moment. The IISS actually did a really interesting conflict map of Myanmar, which is worth looking at because it really does show you the different kinds of conflicts, urban resistance, ethnic Multiple different kinds, as you say. I mean, to some extent, it is coordinated. The resistance to the regime is coordinated. It's coming under the People's Defence Force at the moment. And that includes a number of ethnic groups of pre-existing conflicts that align themselves with the resistance movement. Obviously, they all have slightly different means of operating. There's no real sort of coordinating force. So it is a little complicated, but I think they're all pretty united in opposing the military junta. Now, Aung San Suu Kyi herself is a pretty polarizing figure at this point in time. Is there still the hope that she will come back, make some kind of a return to power? I think that's extremely unlikely as things stand. For Aung San Suu Kyi, what we've always said is that she is tainted by her approach to the Rohingya trustees. She was this human rights icon who's now tainted, but obviously she remains the most prominent resistance leader. So she is being held by the junta. She faces a prison term of a total of 33 years. So, you know, well beyond life expectancy of pretty much anyone at this point. So I think very, very unlikely. There is, however, you know, what we're really looking towards this year is this sham election. So the junta wants to hold an election as the state of emergency expires. We expect that election around August. And really, it's the junta will use it as a big leaf sort of democracy theatre to try and really get the world to move on and perhaps ease some of the restrictions on trade and sanctions. There is some concern that they would change the rules of her detention, for example, release her around that time, in part to contribute to this sort of democracy theatre. The likelihood that she would be able to operate freely, I think, is almost nil at this point without a change in government. Hmm. What about the economy, Clara? I mean, it depends very much on tourism, and I would imagine there's not much tourism happening right now. Uh, No. (laughs) It is absolutely not a tourism destination. So the economy is, is struggling. So even under... 
and Santity was making a bit of a comeback right at the beginning, you know, a lot of investor interest. And then that with the situation in Raqqa, and remember the military atrocities against the Muslim Rohingya minority, that really pushed people back. It was already doing poorly, even before the coup. And with the coup, of course, all this sort of interest has dissipated. People sold out as much as possible. So really the only people still trading with Myanmar and still working there would be China to some extent, India and Thailand. So it really is very, very restrictive. Are other countries getting involved? You know, is there any invitation for other countries to get involved or try to help the resistance, if not obviously the uh, armed forces? So no, this isn't a sort of Ukraine situation where the West or indeed any other parties has sort of really thrown its lot in with the resistance. I think part of the problem here is that it's extremely complicated, mm. very, very difficult to solve because you're not just solving the consequences of the coup, you're solving, you know, decades of different conflicts within the country, in a very large country at that. So it's almost an intractable problem. It's very, very unattractive for countries to get involved in, particularly the West with its very limited leverage in Myanmar. But what's striking, of course, is that the region, so for ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, this has really been a litmus test and... I think while they haven't done as badly as some people had expected, and they certainly they have managed to downgrade, for example, the representation of the junta, exclude them to some extent, it really hasn't gone far enough to attempt to solve the problem and to do things, for example, like make it much, much harder for junta leaders to come to Singapore and, you know, get their health care. And because, of course, Myanmar has collapsed, not least because the military's crackdown on doctors and nurses but they can come to Singapore, they can come to Singapore and get education, come to Singapore and buy property. So, you know, all of that is really what we would have expected to see a lot more. Indonesia is at the head of ASEAN this year, so, you know, coasting on the back of their, or surfing on the back of their success in Bali, I hope to see something more, but really, um, I mean, Indonesia's priority is, is economic growth and it is unlikely to want to, to get too bogged down with Myanmar. And, and while the neighbours continue to sort of tacitly support the military, so China... India, Thailand, at least China to a lesser extent, but certainly the others, is very, very difficult to, to, to unpick this. What happens next? Is there an event that we're waiting for? You know, we're obviously seeing an increase in fighting. Uh, according to one estimate, there was a nearly 400% increase in airstrikes over, you know, certain areas of Myanmar. Would it help if it was more in the international eye? First of all, in terms of international eye, I mean, I think absolutely it would help. So it isn't, you mentioned Myanmar journalism. I mean, a number of very, very brave people are still reporting in Myanmar, not least Burmese journalists. So, you know, there is a, a number of initiatives like Irrawaddy, Frontier Myanmar, really against the odds. You know, a number the number of journalists detained in Myanmar is, is very, very high indeed and has only gotten worse since the coup. Very difficult conditions to operate. I think the problem is largely that the, the outside world is distracted. There are just too many problems. So even in 2021, there was COVID, there was Afghanistan, there was Tigray, there's now Ukraine. I mean, there's just so much to concentrate on, so much to distract, that when you have a problem as intractable as this, it's not, it's sort of perhaps comprehensible why people, you know, especially political leaders, choose to, to focus elsewhere. The problem, of course, is that it doesn't get solved if it's out of the limelight and only sinks further into this horrible civil war with a huge human cost and an economic cost. So I think what we're really looking for this year is, is the election, uh, which is to say is it's sort of August, we expect more or less in August. Um, and that will really be an attempt by the military to, in a little bit of democracy theatre, I think, to try and get to try and split the international community because a lot of the non-democratic countries will 
the less democratic countries in the region will really look to this and say, oh, well, you know, Myanmar has been a problem forever. This is the best of a bad situation. They've now had an election of sorts. We move on. And I think that's really where we need to draw the line. I think that even though the West has limited leverage, we can do still quite a lot to make sure the situation doesn't at least get worse. Bloomberg Opinions, Clara Ferreira-Marquez. Don't forget we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your favourite podcast platform. And do always feel free to get in touch with thoughts and opinions. We love to hear from you. Email me at vquinn at bloomberg.net. If you're a retailer and you survive the pandemic, well, you might just be okay. Bloomberg Opinion's Justin Fox has been digging into the data. He joins me now. Howard Davidowitz used to come in every year and tell us which retailers were going to go bankrupt. And that's fine, right? I mean, retailers go bankrupt all the time. It's one of the areas where you see constant turnover. Are you calling for retail bankruptcies this year? I mean, everybody seems to be expecting more, but that's partly because there were hardly any in 2021 and 2022. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, it was really tough for a lot of retailers because nobody was going out. And basically, e-commerce... And to a certain extent, Sam's Club, Costco did really well. And in general, over the past couple of decades, those two sectors in particular, e-commerce and what the Census Bureau and the retail sales data calls warehouse clubs and superstores, have been just taking market share away from everybody else. And what's kind of interesting over the course of the pandemic is, yes, e-commerce took even more, especially very early in the pandemic. But the warehouse clubs and superstores haven't really gained market share. And traditional retailers, the last couple of years have been the best couple of years they've had in a decade or more. It's fascinating because you would have thought that in an era of high inflation, people would immediately decide that they're going to buy more in bulk. Is it because they can't buy in bulk? Yeah, that's okay. I mean, and it could be that towards the end of 2022, this was shifting. I was sort of looking over the course of the pandemic. But yeah, you'd think people trying to fight inflation, although there are other, you know, they can go to Aldi and Lidl, which would show up not under the superstores, or they could go to Family Dollar or something. So I think that shifting happens in a lot of different directions. And I mean, I'm sure big Target stores show up in the superstore category, and Target actually struggled in the middle of this because it was too expensive for people. So I don't know what's causing that, but it's just kind of like maybe the traditional retailers of sort of their period of getting hollowed out by these two sectors on the rise may have given way to an era where, for one thing, a lot of the surviving big retailers are pretty adept with e-commerce now, too. And maybe we've reached this point where they can hold their ground. Obviously, if this is a really bad year for the economy the next year, that won't be. But I I just think there's at least reason to hope maybe the next few years will actually be better still than before the pandemic. It does seem like one of the explanations has to be that because we haven't had so much contact for so long that going into a store, even if you don't buy something, is a social experience. And, you know, touching something and being able to touch something is an experience in itself. And that that's perhaps what the brick and mortar retailers were always good for. And now that's sort of becoming thing again. We have seen some retailers, though, warn that they're not having a good time. And some of those are ones that we've been expecting for a long time, like Bed Bath & Beyond. Others have had supply chain issues and they're trying to sort them out. And then we had Lululemon as well, saying it's not going to be an easy year. They're also retailers you would have thought people would like to go in and browse around in. So what's the difference there? Well, I I mean, my 
non-retail expert take on Lululemon is that everybody already bought enough sweats and yoga pants. I mean, that like the, was a big boom category for the past two years. And now as more people are going into offices, I just think demand shifts and it's not going to necessarily be great for them temporarily. It is fascinating with retailers, though, because they have to shift gear really fast yeah. often. Remember Lululemon had the problem with the, the see-through pants and they had to yep. sort of fix that and fix their reputation, frankly, because of that. That all got solved. Now they have this to deal with. And also, I feel like the era of influencer marketing is also over. That's become sort of a theme among retail analysts as well. So retailers sort of have to figure out what the landscape is for the next year or two, particularly in high inflation. And yes, wages are rising, but not real wages. But I do think it's a tough sector. Even if you are the hot new thing, you might be in trouble in a couple of years. I mean, one of the companies that's in big trouble, at least according to the price of its debt, is Wayfair, which is you know online furniture retailer. But I just, I think it's like this huge storm hit retail over the past couple of decades. And it's not gone away, but it feels like more and more places have kind of reconstructed their businesses in a way that they can survive the the high winds of e-commerce <laughs> and of changing fashion. Bloomberg Opinions, Justin Fox. And that does it for this week's show. We're produced by Eric Mollo. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.